this weekend, let things yeah. dry, and then maybe do like the finding touches next weekend and hang them back up. But like, I don't know, understand why. I forget what there's this. It's only I forget what the name of this like principle is or this kind of like concept, but it's essentially that we overestimate our abilities to accomplish certain things, and yep. it's very easy to do that. And when you do do that, you can put yourself in a predicament where you uh, you underdeliver on yourself. But it's so like that's another kind of downside to it is you're only accountable to yourself when you don't have other people that you're accountable to. It can make it a little bit more difficult to stay on track. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Creating Wealth Podcast, where I, Kyle, from Kyle Curtin Real Estate, interview local top dogs in the real estate investing, wealth building, and personal finance industries. Let's build together. What's up, guys? This week's guest on the show is incredibly inspiring and making large strides in the real estate investing world. Ryan is an impressive local investor with an awesome story. In the first part of this two-part interview, we get a chance to chat about some really awesome topics. In this episode, we learn about Ryan's entry into the REI game and some very valuable tips from using creativity in deals, creating accountability with each other in the real estate space, and so much more. This interview was a ton of fun and I hope you enjoy Let's jump right into the episode. What's up, guys? Welcome to episode 93 of the Creating Wealth podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of chatting with Ryan Emrich, an extremely inspiring local real estate investor with Blue Canyon Equity Partners, as well as an awesome finance and accounting professional. What's going on, Ryan? Super stoked to have you on here, man. What's new? Hey. Thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm excited. Nothing crazy is new. We did actually, me and my Blue Canyon Equity Partners, did just close today, though, this morning on a five-family out in Nayer, Massachusetts. So we're very happy about that. We're celebrating this victory, and we're starting to think about how to tackle the next property, tackle the next investment endeavor. So um, we're happy. We've been making good progress together as a team. But other than that, nothing, nothing that new other than those types of things. How about yourself? What's going on in your life, man? <laughs> Things are going okay. Congratulations, by the way. That's extremely exciting, man. Thank you. I appreciate wow. it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, pretty much, you know, same thing over here. Just trying to, um, you know, just kind of make moves and kind of get to the next step and hopefully finish these unit renovations soon. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. The, the house hack for you is is you're getting the, the real experience there, digging into the weeds, doing the work yourself. That's good. I think that's awesome. Thank you, man. <laughs> and I'm sure you're thinking about how to not do those things in the future. Like, oh, I gotta yes. hire this out next time, <laughs> some way, somehow. <laughs> yeah, 100%, man. And like, not to jump in too much about me, but guys, basically like what I'm going through right now is so I have, you know, my, my three family owner occupying one of the units with three bedrooms. One of the units that, or the unit that had a two bedroom in it, my smallest unit, that tenant moved out, which I'm super excited about phenomenal guy you know family like they found a house in Gardner. it's it's great i'm very excited for him but something also that i'm really excited for is now that he's gone i'm moving into his unit and i'm gonna rent out the bigger units you know and try and get a lot more money and you know kind of cover the piti much better and hopefully cash flow or get very close to it and um but the thing that's been interesting is i tried to do a lot of the work myself 
and you know a guy with a 40 hour a week job i'm sure ryan can definitely uh definitely knows where it's, i'm coming from <laughs> you get ambitious you're like i can do it and you can do it you can plan it out you're like i know i can do this but little things come up in life where it just throws things behind and if you're really counting on that money that income stream down the road then all of a sudden you're like oh my goodness now it's another three months of mortgage payments i have to make out of pocket because i didn't find the time to do this and I, I don't know for you but for me it gets demoralizing after a little bit kind of just are less motivated to go tackle it or you, or I don't know if this ever happens to you. Sometimes it's a project for me where I'll get like 90% of the way there and I'll feel like, oh, this looks really good. This looks really good. I made a lot of progress over this weekend. But then that last 10% just takes almost like forever. Yeah. yeah. So I've just been getting in the mindset for the projects that I've been working on. Um, and I, you know, right now I'm working on a FHA 203K house hack in Medford, Massachusetts. So that's a three family. And I've got contractors working on that. It's a little behind schedule, but things are going well. And that's kind of the mindset I've been in. It's like a good thing I didn't put, I didn't commit myself to doing any of those things because you just don't know where life's going to take you. And yeah. it's not really my expertise. Like, you know, as you said at the beginning in the intro, I kind of have a finance and accounting professional or finance and accounting background. So that's really where my expertise is, so to say. Uh, but doing that hands-on stuff like painting, I've done it once before, but I was like, I am not a good painter. I'm over it. <laughs> Maybe if I was a slumlord somewhere, I could probably throw together a decent paint job, but uh, it's not my style. I'm like, if you're going to do it, if you're going to play for the materials, you might as well just pay for the guys to do it right and have it look good. So, Yeah. I, but I nothing totally against agree people that, that want to do it themselves. You know, nothing against that. I think it's a great experience and it helps you learn the components, the kind of inputs that result uh, they come together to create like a nice output. And sometimes it's not obvious what those inputs are. So in a way, it's almost like you become a mini general contractor, like learning how to do and put together a unit or turn over a unit. So I respect those that have the motivation or who are a little bit more handy than I am, but I've never been that handy. And I just don't aspire to be at this point in life. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll change. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally feel you on that one, man. And like the thing is too, is like I, I enjoy doing some of the... Um, some of like the tactical like hands-on type of work but at this point after making the decision that i did to like try and refinish a kitchen on my own and like after never doing this before and like you, you refinished were you like changing the countertops too or is it just like refinishing the cabinets type of stuff like how how intense was that it was more or less the cabinets but so, so i started this probably like over two months ago and half the cabinets are still on the floor so <laughs> yeah and that's the thing it's like you're like you know you can do it and you're like logically i can watch this on youtube like if i do this right i get all the materials at home depot like i should be able to nail i should be able to do like most of the cabinets this weekend let things yeah. dry and then maybe do like the finding touches next weekend and hang them back up but like, i don't know understand why i forget there's this it's only i forget what the name of this like principle is or this kind of like concept but it's essentially that we overestimate our abilities to accomplish certain things and yep. it's very easy to do that and when you do do that you can put yourself in a predicament where you uh you under deliver on yourself but it's so like that's another kind of downside to it is you're only accountable to yourself when you don't have other people that you're accountable to it can make it a little bit more difficult to stay on track and so that's one of the reasons that you know as i was talking last night when we were presenting at the gardener meetup one of the reasons for me it was really nice going into a partnership and finding some like-minded individuals to work with who really balanced out where my weaknesses were is because we do hold each other accountable. And that's where like, things like a mastermind group um, where you can kind of just not actually, it's not an official formal partnership. It's just like getting together and you can do this in any industry. It doesn't have to necessarily be real estate, but dedicating some time each week to meet with a few select individuals who you like the way they think. And you want to just talk each week about what your highs and lows are, what your goals are for the coming week. 
and you kind of check in with each other the following week and the following week to see if you're meeting those goals and you're progressing. And so like it's those types of programs where it's like if you know you have a hard time holding yourself accountable, I think those types of things can really uh, be a really good thing to implement. You get you get the results. And I know, I mean, we've all heard this, like if you're if you write down your goals, you're, I don't know, 90% more likely to achieve them or something like that. Same type of thing. I think it's just like putting yourself in the mindset and having some accountability there, being able to look at something and say, oh, I told myself I was going to do this. You know, am I yeah. keeping up with it? So. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, man. You know, and I think the accountability thing is absolutely huge. And like, that's, that's something that I definitely have a long way to go on. And like, I'm still exploring because like, I feel like I need that, like, you know, that accountability to be like, oh, dude, like, did you finish, you know, like the first three cabinets, like you said you were going to do like, yes, no, like, why not? Like, <laughs> you know, like, what's your deal? Like, if you, you know? want set a goal for this podcast, and I'll hold it to you next week. I'll check in and I'll see if you accomplish it. <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it man i'm gonna have to give it a little bit of thought <laughs> no, stop. i won't put you on the spot i won't put you on the spot. <laughs> but that's great i think that's really smart that you're that you decided to move into the other units and then just rent out the bigger ones i think that'll in the long run be much more lucrative for you and i would imagine you probably didn't need to live in all that living space so no. uh, I would... three bedrooms for just a single guy is a bit much man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> i'm sure you start a family anytime soon <laughs> Or you could rent, could rent out the bedrooms if you want some roommates. So it's another another strategy and people will go. It's funny you say that actually, because that's something that I'm exploring right now. So I was before, but the thing is, is like in this part of the house, the bedrooms are all upstairs. But the only issue is, is that you have to walk through one to get to the next one to get to the next mm. one. And the, I'm actually technically in the first bedroom right now, and there should be a wall literally like right here going that way like i should be yeah. in the hallway right now like exactly and <laughs> like as soon as i started that project like i literally have like i'm replacing the rugs anyway so i just took a sharpie and marked out like i think it was five feet um for like a hallway because i know you mm -hmm. need like i believe it's 36 inches of clearance and i'm like oh like a little bit more like won't shrink the bedroom size too much and i started that project but then is when my uh tenants told me they were gonna leave Mm. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I can't really manage like a, well, I shouldn't say I can't, but it would be very, very difficult for the point that I'm at right now to kind of manage, you know, like a job like this. And like, I don't know how much it would cost plus dealing with the vacancy factor and like yeah. basically just trying to keep everything afloat. Um, so, and, and it kind of, you know, had me on the cusp of wanting to try it since I bought the house like seven months ago and I never ended up doing it. But it's a good idea. I like the idea. But that's just one of those things where it's it's almost like I'm like, okay, do I attempt this myself or do I spend the I don't know how much it costs, like thirty five hundred dollars to hire some carpenters to build up some walls and yeah. install some doors for me and stuff like that. So but it's a calculation everybody has to decide for themselves and maybe now's not the right time for you. So it's just it is what it is at that point. But um I think it's a good idea. Putting up a wall erecting like a nice hallway there, especially if you do still have enough room. Yeah. Um, after you put up the wall to still have a good sized bedroom and you could do that times three and there you go you just turned like uh maybe one bedroom and two common spaces into three bedrooms by doing something like that so exactly perfect, perfect example of how to create value 100 percent, man and the thing that i'm actually kind of exploring too right now because my intention was going to be to um rent out the other bedroom in my two bedroom unit and in the past couple days so this is something I was actually going to write a Facebook post about it. I, I still should because this is something like I had no idea. And like I, I feel like it can kind of affect, um, you know, a lot of investors if they wanted to deploy 
the strategy to be able to rent by the bedroom or student rentals and that type of thing is so the state of Massachusetts, like literally on like mass.gov, it says that you can rent to up to three unrelated people per bedroom per property. I was like, okay. And then, you know, as soon as you add that fourth person, then it turns into like a rooming house and then it's like a whole nother thing. And like, (laughs) and it's a fine line. And I know a lot of people who will, you know, you don't get the rooming license. You just rent it out by the bedroom and hope for the best. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was going into things with that in mind. I'm like, oh, all right. Like, you know, I'll just rent out my other bedroom in there. The bedrooms are, are huge in the other unit. And like they're normal, I guess, if you will. And like walls aren't messed up and, and whatever. But I was talking to uh, my attorney about it, actually. I'm like, hey, I'm like, I just want to run it by you. I'm like, you know, is it cool? If I rent out by the bedroom to, you know, this one person. And then also I was actually listening to um, one of the bigger pockets podcasts from a while ago with um, Ricky Bellavo um, out of Boston. And uh, the way that he got started was he bought two, three families in Boston that were um, or I think he started with one, I, I believe. Um, and he did student rentals. And I was questioning and I'm like, huh, because like he rents it out to like a, you know, a good amount of bedrooms in there. I'm like, but knowing what I know about like Massachusetts, I'm like, is that like, okay, like, does that work? And I was actually, I kept reading into like the student rental strategy and like, because it's, it's really insane. And like, it's, it's something that's really been on my brain because Fitchburg State University is like nine minutes away from me. And there's like public transit that's like not like down the street. And I'm like, huh, I'm like, interesting. But again, you know, the first thing I was going back to was, oh, in Massachusetts, you can only have, you know, three unrelated people in bedrooms. But the more research that I did, it turns out it's perfectly okay that if you have three bedrooms in a unit and you want to rent those, you know, by the bedroom, if you put all of, if you put those three tenants on the same lease, the same contract with the co-signers, if you're doing that type of thing, then they're technically renting out the entire unit. And it just so happens that, you know, they have like one bedroom with like, you know, one lock set to themselves and like everything's fine. And then like everything started to click. I'm like, whoa. But the thing that I also learned from my attorney, which guys, I would just run all of this by your attorney. Like I'm not going to be like liable for this. This is just like kind of what I've, you know, discovered in the past couple of days. But if you want to try something like this, ask your attorney anyway, just to make sure. But um, the other thing was that I heard was that Massachusetts has their own guidelines for that, but individual towns and cities also have their own ordinances for that as well. So I looked up what Lemonsters was, or actually I called the building department um, and I, I called them up and they're like, yeah, they're like, you can't rent by the bedroom in Lemonster um, unless it's a family member. Mm. I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. So that kind of, you know, after another talk with my attorney again, he's like, yeah, you know, you might be out of it for this one you know, <laughs> to get the, uh, you well, know, good the roommate in my unit. But props to you for wanting to do it by the book. I mean, it'd be, you know, in compliance or at least know if you're in compliance or not. I think that's admirable because I would Thank say you, most man. people aren't necessarily worrying about that. Like I know for me, my very first rental property that I bought was a three family by Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yep. That was an FHA. It was a house hack as well. Um, I mean, because FHA is supposed to be owner-occupied. So I guess 
technically it's a house hack. But what we did for that was we, even though we inherited what we thought was going to be three tenants that were going to stay there, except for one that we thought was going to move out within a couple months, it ended up being much more of a nightmare. The third floor unit immediately said, no, we can't afford this rent on the lease. I guess that old landlord had like bumped up his rents, but not actually was collecting it. And then once we came in as the new owners, they were like, we can't afford this and they left. And then the second floor tenants, apparently the estoppel certificate was forged or they're claiming was forged by the seller. So they, we thought they were paying like $950. I guess they were only paying $400 a month. And then they, they just stopped paying altogether. I'm like, well, even if you thought you only paid 450 or 400, you weren't paying us. So that was an eviction. So like at the end of the day, the tenant that ended up being the best was actually the one we thought was going to be the worst, which was the one on the first floor. And they ended up being the they ended up being the best tenant and the most reliable for us. Um, but we got through it. That was a scary time. But we did end up renting that building by the bedroom. Um, and then it was actually one of my first investing partners. We ended up having some disagreements on the best way to proceed as investors moving forward. And we actually ended up splitting. But the point is, is the bed, the bedroom, renting by the bedroom was very lucrative for us. I mean, it was a unit where we thought market rents were about 1200 to 1300 we maybe thought we could get a little bit more if we just did some light cosmetic stuff, just like painting every day and maybe putting in a washer dryer into the unit. But at the end of the day, we were able to get like close to 1600 to 1650 a unit by renting it by the bedroom. And we included internet in the whole building because we figured, you know, why have people pay for it three times over? You just get the premium internet, you get some a mesh Wi-Fi system in there, and then you get strong internet in each unit. And then it was literally walking distance to Clark. So it was like perfect. It, it was not even something that we realized we could do. We didn't realize it was more lucrative. It was something that we stumbled upon. You're doing it with a little bit more intention, which I think is great. So now you've got your property there and you're really thinking about how to do it and how to do it legally, which I commend you for because I think that's the right thing to do. So, um, but you're totally right. I think you're, you're probably sounds exactly right that it's depends on the municipality, but yeah. also, you know, I think you're you're spot on with that little loophole, which is if everybody's on the same lease, then you can kind of not have to worry about the the rooming license. Yeah, and it's something that's really interesting because, like, I was on you know bigger pockets a ton. Like, I talked to a couple local people, um, you know, around the the Boston market that have done stuff like this, <clears throat> and it's it's extremely common to do that, mm. I guess. And um, I was like, interesting. Okay, so that's it's how you funny, can because it. I, I'm constantly, because like I, this Medford property that I have, I was like, will it be more lucrative for me to rent it by the bedroom? But it really seems like because Boston already has so much demand, like the vacancy rates have always been low in Boston. Yeah. And then on top of that, it is already a lot of students and young professionals. So it's almost like renting by the bedroom is already factored into the, the organic natural price for like a two bedroom or a three bedroom or four bedroom. Like it's already taken into consideration that it's going to be priced by the bedroom or could be priced by the bedroom. So you just multiply times three to get what the normal you know, monthly rent would be. So it seems like it's one of those things where it depends on the market too. Like Boston, I don't know if you really have that much of an advantage. Maybe you said Ricky did. So maybe Ricky did at the time, or maybe, maybe I'm just totally wrong. Maybe you still can game the system and get, get like an extra couple hundred bucks a month per unit doing it that way. Um, but I love it. It's like creative and, and you get like, especially yeah, when you're young, cool. you can relate to that demographic so I think it's really easy or a, a, little, a little easier to understand the amenities that are going to mean a lot to them or like, you know, you probably don't want to have, you know, a 50 year old roommate if you're 22 or something in, in college, like just stuff like that. So 
yeah but it's nice you know roommates obviously get to say who they get to live with so it's not it's not like you're discriminating yeah it's it's gonna be interesting you know it's like just learning more and more about the strategy like it's it's incredibly interesting and like it's funny too man because like i told um i told a couple people about it and like the second i said you know renting to students they're like oh my god like it just kind of has that like like it's a cringe factor for some people yeah they're like, oh, and probably party and like all that stuff. I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I have been to some ratchet apartments out by UMass Amherst. Like when I was in college, <laughs> visiting some friends out there, I was like, it's almost like a, a guarantee that the security deposit is forfeited for like almost every college aged uh, tenant because it's like there's just naturally damage from people yeah. stealing beer everywhere during parties and windows getting broken and holes getting thrown in the walls. So, yeah. I mean, but that's when you're at huge party schools. I think it's like totally different. Like, I don't necessarily think of Fitchburg State as being a huge party school necessarily. And you can screen for that type of stuff and you can put parents on as co-signers. And there's, I think there's things that you can do to mitigate the risk that you'd have a, a out of control type of situation. So um, it does come with a little bit more risk, but at the same time, it can be a little bit more lucrative. So as the old adage goes, it's higher risk, higher reward. Definitely. Yeah. It's it's just something interesting. I'm like, wow, like even I like, think you should do it, especially if you're living in a big I'm gonna try it. I'm gonna get try two it. or three roommates and um, just do it. No, whatever. I mean, yeah. try to stay within the, the boundaries of the law, but I think it's <laughs> not a big deal. And it, it is a cool way. You could probably in an area like Lemons or Fitchburg, you could I think very easily get your full market rent uh, for that unit with just renting out the other two bedrooms, two of the three bedrooms type of thing. Yeah. Um, or you could be living there mostly free for yourself, you know? And then you really maximize the amount of income you can generate at the property. Because if you're already renting out the entire other two units, and then you're renting out like two thirds of your unit, and you're still living there in your bedroom, maybe you take the smallest bedroom, I don't know. Um, maybe you put a coin op laundry, then you're like really squeezing out every dime that you can get from them. And it's a money making machine, then you have a cash cow and you're happy, you know? Exactly. And it's, it's just really cool, man. You know what I mean? Like, especially from the, the vacancy perspective and like, I still have a lot to learn about it and like actually going to, you know, try it. But like from the research that I was doing, like they were talking a lot about like vacancy, like it almost becomes a thing of the past because like, there's so many more people in there and like, you know, obviously, you know, like doing things the right way and everything, like there's so much more income coming in and like, I've been running some numbers on it, man. And I'm like, okay interesting <laughs> you know and, and to your point ryan like the um what's it called i mean there is it is you know a, a niche within buy and hold and like there's going to be a learning curve to it and like different kinds of challenges to, de to deal with but like the way i look at it is like if you can yeah i mean you're going to get banged around a little bit and like things are going to happen i mean it, it is what it is but like if you can get through that systematize as much as you can so you have like as little of those problems happening as you can mm -hmm. like i don't know i feel like it could be a game changer you know like if you can kind of make that business model work and like you know yeah it's just it's it sounds really cool you know it's definitely and, something that's in my head <laughs> and I, I think that's actually like a good point because there's a lot of creativity that you can implement or have or bring to the table when you're first starting out doing your first deal, especially with these programs that allow you to come in with a very low down payment, a small amount of money, like the FHA program where you can go as low as three and a half percent. I think the VA loans, if you're a veteran, I think you can get 0% down. 
yep. I think the first time uh, Massachusetts home buyer, there's a 3% program. So that, anyways, I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can get 5% or under as a down payment. And then you can be really creative. Yeah, you might have PMI. You might, you're going to have your normal principal interest taxes insurance, the pity that you mentioned. Yeah. But if you can get to a spot where renting out all of the other units but yourself get you to a, an at least break-even point covering your mortgage payment, and then you can start renting out some of the extra space in your unit, then all of a sudden you're making money. And, or then if you're down the road, you need to move out for whatever reason, you just outgrown the space or you have a significant other or whatever, you're just ready to move on and get your next property. Now you've got something that's actually cash flowing pretty pretty strongly once you've got that third unit or the last unit, I should say, rented out. It obviously could be two unit, three unit, four unit, single family. You know. Sky's the limit, man. Sky is the limit. <laughs> in way. It's like you, you can, there's ways to make money, one to four units in every market. That's the thing I think is super cool. At times it gets harder. And those are the times where you just have to become more creative and use the resources that you have or find the resources to make the deals a little bit sweeter, to add a little sugar and spice to them, to make them sugar and bit, spice, and make them more appetizing, you know? And that's like one of the things that we've been doing, like me and my partners, we, with Blue Canyon Equity, we are, one of the ways that we're, we're finding deals right now is through off-market direct mail campaigns. In addition, we're looking at stuff that hits the MLS. In addition, we're talking and trying to build broker relationships so that we can get pocket listings, listings that don't hit the MLS, but that the broker has negotiated so you can still get them at a good deal. But for us, it's kind of like we want to try to have as little competition as possible, especially when we're starting out because the buildings that are smaller are more attainable and affordable to a non-savvy investor, an unsavvy investor. And so when you have unsavvy investors going to buy these types of properties, they boost up the price, especially when money's cheap or when people are afraid of inflation. So you might decide to just put your money into real estate or you think the market's not too well. There's a variety of reasons. There's hundreds of reasons why you might want to go into real estate. But recently, it just seems like these prices prop, prices for properties, especially in that one to 10 unit range, have really been bumping up um, because, in my opinion, in part, unsavvy investors who don't necessarily know how to analyze the deals, how to necessarily look for a good return. They're just content or, or their, their standards are just different than maybe what I would say is like a typical investor. And so they go in and they're willing to what I would consider overpay for the property and they're boosting up the property's value. Which is good. It's good if you're a property owner. It's good for the seller, the owner of the building, you know. But for us going into buy it, we're trying to get it as as much of a discount as possible because that that insulates us in case there's a market downturn or in case it takes us a little bit longer to get the building fully occupied or rented at market value. You know, we've got a little insulation there, so we're not going to be underwater should the value of the building drop for some reason. Essentially, is the way that I view it. And so if you can get it at, I think Brandon Turner and all the big real estate minds kind of, I think would agree. It's like the sweet spot is you make your money. This is one theory. It's not obviously hundred percent accurate, but you make your money when you buy. But I think, you know, part of that is buying at good value because if you can buy a good value, then in theory tomorrow, you could just sell the building, sell it at market value and still make your money back. If not a little bit more, which is really ideal. That'd be ideal, but it's hard to find those things. It's hard to find them right now. So this is why we've, we started doing the direct mail campaign. Um, and we're trying to look at some other creative ways too. Uh, we're trying to stay creative. We're trying to open it up. But again, like we all have W2 jobs or we all kind of do our own full-time thing right now. We're not quite at the point where we can dedicate our 100% of our working time uh, to this endeavor. So, But we're getting there. Like I can feel it. Like It just takes a little bit of a bigger deal or a way that one of at least one of us can start making monetizing the real estate stuff so that you can live off of it. And then I think that's kind of like a critical mass where you, you can go from there and launch yourself into a, a full blown out real estate career. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree, man. And I know that um, kind of getting to that point of like just wanting to, you know, dedicate like our full weeks and everything to real estate is is something that, you know, we all have our eyes on, <laughs> you know, and like if it could happen sooner, that would be fantastic. <laughs> it's the dream and get that real estate professional designation. Yeah, it's, it's where we want to be. All the write-offs. Um, yep. <laughs> and that's that's the biggest struggle right now. It's, it's like I want to grow faster. I want to acquire more. I know that I'm capable of it. It's just there's certain things that I'm still learning that I'm like I'm there or I'm right on the edge of being there where where it's like how do you get the funds together? Essentially raising money for deals. It, it's really where we need to be next. And that's where we're thinking, that's where we're looking, and that's where we're starting to build our relationships and talk with our friends and family and talk with other real estate like-minded individuals, people who may people are generally just gonna be comfortable taking a solid return that's backed by real estate or backed by you know knowledgeable, competent investors. It's gonna beat the stock market. It's gonna be, you know, a measly checking our savings account interest rate. Um, and you get to learn some real estate along the way. So I think that's what we're really excited to do is sharing the beauty of real estate with others as we grow our business um, and as we buy more deals and scoop up more deals. But in order to do that, you know, in order to have an enticing deal with enticing returns, or excuse me, I should say, in order to have a deal that you can present to investors or, you know, get some money from friends and family, in order to do those types of things, you need to have a deal that's really good and really strong so that you can offer a strong return to your investors, your limited partners. Um, and that's that's what we're looking for. So that's another reason why I was kind of thinking, or we were kind of thinking the off-market uh, off category of real estate was a good place to look and direct mail is one way to access tap into that yeah yeah I, I totally agree man and to actually transition right into that you know could you tell us a little bit about you know kind of like how you got started in real estate like how you um you know like bought that first three family all the way to you know like teaming up with uh you know with the other guys yeah. and yeah so this started all the way back in 2018 i mean me even before that so i guess like i studied accounting and criminal justice in college and i thought i wanted to do forensic accounting something like with the FBI, white collar crime. And then I ended up just kind of doing public accounting. Um, I was a financial statement auditor. So I worked in audit and insurance with a public accounting firm in Boston. And I did that for a year, year and a half. And I liked it. And it got me a lot of exposure to like the behind the scenes of the business. You get to talk with some higher up executives. You get to pick their brain on how they think the company's operating. You get to see how they kind of the underlying assumptions they make for forecasting. You get to see the financials for the company. So this kind of got me thinking of, oh, I think it'd be really cool to own a business. I was starting to really understand like business operations a little bit more. So watching programs like Marcus Lemonis's The Profit on CNBC, I think it is. So like, it's those types of things where I'm like, okay, like not saying I am Marcus Lemonis, but it's like he, I can bring 20% of the value he brings, probably not even that much. But the, I was just like, I, I know I could do something similar to that. And yeah. bring value to a business. So then I started looking at businesses. I started looking at food and beverage franchise opportunities. I wanted to become a franchisee, like owning Dunkin' Donuts. But I kind of want to do something a little bit more every day. Not that Dunkin' Donuts is. I just think it's a very competitive franchise to buy into, to, to open. So I was looking at things like Firehouse Subs or Jersey Mike's or something a little bit more health-oriented. Like there was a restaurant called The Simple Greek, which is like fast, casual, Mediterranean. So I was starting to look at that. I was talking to my parents about it. And I was thinking my mom might want to invest with me in something like that. And then I was, so now it's like 2018 and I've kind of thinking about these things for the last year, two years. Or so. so I'm reading about franchises, about, you know, the franchise disclosure documents and how to go through those and how to interview 
franchise owners to learn about how the business is performing. And then I was talking to a, an old friend of mine, acquaintance from uh, the public accounting firm that I had worked at, and he had mentioned real estate. And it's something that I had like thought about in the past, but I wasn't necessarily like on the front of my mind. Yeah. And so we started talking about real estate, we started talking about rental property. He introduced me to the bigger pockets world, which I guess he had already known about for a little bit of time. So I started reading a couple of books. My mom had introduced me to Rich Dad Poor Dad maybe a year or two prior. That's probably what was like one of the leading factors into starting to think about the franchise business and stuff. Um, so I had already read Rich Dad Poor Dad, which is, you know, as most people know, it's it's a big kind of game changer and the way it changes individuals' mindsets. It's funny, I'm actually probably the only person that's like very critical, not the only person, but as an accountant, he says things that are technically inaccurate about assets and liabilities, but I understand the concept. He's really talking about like, think of these things like liabilities, think of these things like cash producing assets. And if you can put yourself in that mindset, you will be better off in the long run. And I think that is probably like more accurate than not to have that mindset. But anyway, so... I we did real estate. So 2018, we started looking for some. I immediately just started like talking, reaching out to some uh, realtors and booking open houses. Like I, I don't even think I waited a week. I think we talked about it. I read a book and I was like, yeah, this seems cool. Let's start exploring. It's like low cost. You need to drive around going to open houses. So why not? So we started looking in Everett, Massachusetts. We started looking in Medford and Somerville. They're expensive areas. Cambridge. These are very expensive areas. We just weren't fully aware that for this idea of a house hack, we live in one unit different than the others that is still going to be very difficult to cash flow when you're that leveraged, when you're coming into it with 5% or less down. I think we were in three and a half percent at the time. So if it's a million dollar property, you're coming down with $35,000 for the down payment. And then on top of that, you've got PMI, you've got your taxes, you've got your insurance, you've got your, uh, all of the other trash, yep. yeah, trash property management. We would probably do most of that stuff. Like trash probably wouldn't be a big thing. Property management wouldn't be a big thing, but doing things like advertising, you know, accounting, you know, there are certain legal fees. These are the things that we're like, when we start adding in the sense that we feel like we should be adding in, it seemed to be, they all seem to lose money. So we're like, how do people do this? How do people, even when we did 20% down, we were kind of like, it didn't make sense to us. And then we learned that there's, there is a group like type of investor where they don't necessarily invest for the cash flow or they force the cash flow by increasing the amount of the down payment. When you really look at returns, is just mathematical at that point they they would have weak returns but i think it's like people who are able to put down 30 or 40 percent on a property they're going to cash flow for what they think cash flowing is which is they just have their mortgage payment and they say oh there's money left over after the mortgage payment that must be no cash flowing but in the long run it might not be the best use of their money but anyway you know we were like okay so we can't be the appreciation investor we can't go buy something in medford somerville cambridge where we're just going to bet that it's going to increase in value over time. Like we need something that's actually going to cash flow because we didn't have that much cash. We were cash poor. We're, yeah. We didn't even, I don't even think we, we were looking at properties where we were going to come to the table with $35,000. But I think we very well knew it's going to be hard for us to gather that type of money up. But yeah. we wanted to see if it was possible. So anyways, we ruled out those markets. So then we started going a little bit north of the city outside of Boston. We did Lowell and Haverhill, Massachusetts. They were a little bit better. It was a little easier to find deals that were going to closer to cash flow. You, you had to be creative still, but it could happen. But we weren't having a lot of luck there. So then we went to Worcester, Massachusetts, and I had always had a bad idea of what Worcester was. But Worcester was really has been going through a transformational process the last few years, and and the Pawtucket Red Sox moving their team and their stadium up to uh, Worcester, which is now where they are, the Polar Polar, polar Park. Park. Yep. Like that's huge development that's been in the city, along with other things. I don't even know what going, but it's, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of development that are going into the city. And so we ended up buying a property, like I said earlier in the show, uh, 
a three family by Clark University. That was what we settled on. I shouldn't say settled, but that was our first property. And that we were nervous. I mean, everybody's, I think, nervous when you buy your first property. You don't know if you did the numbers right. But by that time, I'm not joking, we had analyzed well over 75 deals. Like we had a financial cal- way over the top. My friend got a calculator from a Harvard professor, real estate investor. Wow. So this thing is super complex. And then I wanted to understand what's happening there. So I built my own calculator and I took from there is what I really liked. But we're talking about things like discounting cash flow rates, looking at internal rates of return, looking at year over year cash flows. That's what I was talking about, the discounting, like looking at that and like discounting the cash flows back. Like we're talking about things leveraged, uh, un- levered and unlevered internal rates of return. Like it's just like terms where I'm like, it was analysis process. This is a definition of it. And I'm like, oh, I'm an accountant. I can do this. I can build this out. I can have the best like calculator tool ever and i'm like yeah maybe but like who cares you don't need to like you're you're i was way over complicating it so we did skinning it down but anyways there was one calculator where it was like everything was rolling forward on multiple tabs to the front page and it would be like a v lookup to all these tabs and we essentially type in the address in each of the little boxes at the top on the first tab and it would bring in all the data all the income statement analysis stuff and then all like the big metrics like cash on cash return cap rate internal rate of return and then we and then we could analyze like 10 properties side by side it's just like the most on paper it sounds like it's the right thing to do but it, it, it wasn't it was like way too much so <laughs> we the point of me telling you this story was i we analyzed way too much so i was like okay i think we have an idea of what's good and what could be good and i also thought we were probably being way too conservative because there was we never could find a deal that worked and the deal that we made work were like dream deals. So I was like, we're doing something wrong with being too conservative, which we were being too conservative. I think one of the reasons, one of the areas we were being very conservative on was repairs and maintenance and capex. And we were just reserving a little too high for those. Like we were assuming every year we have in a place like Worcester, $10,000 plus of capex repairs, yeah. which I just don't think is, is realistic. Uh, that was a little much. Plus on top of that, having $10,000 in repairs and maintenance. And I'm like, okay, the two of those together, $20,000 a year, it was too too aggressive. (laughs) So we we got this property on, uh, in Clark University, by Clark University. And that area just started to see slow improvement. And then the second property was on Vernon Hill, right by Kelly Square, which is where Polar Park went in. And that area is seeing rapid growth and improvement. And so we saw great appreciation. And then on top of that, we saw appreciation during COVID. So those, both of those properties though, we each, you know, we kind of supported one another. One, I say we bought them together because it really was a team decision. It was a team yeah. analysis. And we knew that we were there for one another, even though one property was in his name, one property was in my name. Like I knew if there was an issue with his property that I would step in and contribute my 50% and vice versa. So there really was like that relationship there, that bond. We had a lot of trust in each other. At the end of the day, we didn't have a partnership agreement and that ended up kind of biting me, I felt in the, in the butt down the road. Um, because I just felt that there was a, a a difference in responsibilities or a difference in the amount of work that was being allocated. And then I found myself a year and a half, two years later, having done a majority of the work or feeling like I had done way more that work than he had. And he wanted to start selling everything. I was like, well, I didn't realize, you know, I thought we were holding these for five years. I didn't realize we we're going to hold these for two years and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was a lesson in one, if you make your friends, your business partners, be aware that it could sacrifice the friendship down the road. Second thing is, uh, you know, make sure that you're putting certain precautions in a place, have a discussion on the front end about what the expectation is for the whole strategy. And then beyond that, have it written down somewhere and then have an understanding of what the segregation of duties is going to kind of be between you and your partners. And if you're finding yourself picking up their slack, or if you find yourself doing something 
not to your caliber. You, you have to be comfortable having a conversation with your partners. But ultimately, you also have to decide as a team sometime, let's just hire it out. If you're not happy with the way we're doing it in-house, hire it out. And then that kind of removes a little bit of the, uh, I don't know, it makes it so like it's not feels like a personal attack. Like So right now I'm doing some of the bookkeeping or I'm doing all the bookkeeping for the properties that we own in the Canyon. But I know that's not what I want to be doing long-term. I don't want to be the bookkeeper. I also know that while it's a skill of mine and it's expertise, I think that you know my partners might, for example, be willing to more criticize the way the bookkeeping is being done. Not that I necessarily think they need to, but if they wanted to, they might feel a little bit more comfortable if there was a third party doing it and it wasn't somebody who's their partner doing it. So it's like stuff like that. You just have to be mindful of that. And that's where I think emotional intelligence and self-awareness comes into play. Like, you know, not being able to take everything like it's a criticism and being willing to compromise. This is where strengths that you need in a partnership that you need to be willing to take into a partnership if you want to partner with people. Obviously, if you want to do everything on your own, all, I mean, all the more power to you. There was times where I wanted to do everything on my own too, but you realize you can accomplish more in numbers. So so then anyways, those are the first two properties. So both were in Worcester, both were triple deckers. Uh, the first one had nine bedrooms, three bathrooms, second three units. And the second one had eight bedrooms, three bathrooms, three units. And they were both different types of purchases. One of them needed a little bit more um, investment. One of them was a little nicer starting off. One of them was were so turnkey or so we thought but then all of a sudden the place was you know, we had tenants leaving holy crap how are we going to pay for our mortgage like we we're like we really we really stretch ourselves thin on the down payment another lesson we learned from that and something i would advise if you're going into a deal highly leveraged i think you need to be aware that you should probably have like double what you think you need for the down payment to get started so if you if you're looking at a property i'm just going to make the numbers really simple if it's a million dollar property, let's do it a little bit less. If it's a hundred thousand dollar property and you're coming into it with three and a half percent, then it would be three thousand five hundred dollars for your down payment. So if you think, okay, that's all I need to close, or maybe another thousand bucks for closing fees, I think it'd be a good idea to have yourself in a situation where you have 10K total so that you can have maybe half of that going toward closing, down payment, and then half of it as like an oh shit emergency fund. And that's where we kind of like, we were like, oh, we should be good. Like we've got tenants there, we're paying rent. It's going to cover the mortgage. Like, we'll be fine. But it did feel tight. It got tight at times. There were some things we threw on our credit card and then had to reimburse ourselves down the road. Um, but we, we made it through it. And I think it made be stronger for it. So those are the first two properties. First two properties I ever bought were in Worcester. Those were in 2019. One of them I still have. One of them I sold. And I'm very happy with what's happened in Worcester. Uh, I think a lot of people are happy. If you own real estate in the last two or three years during COVID, you're happy because you saw some awesome appreciation most people not everyone did and in our market in Worcester I think they saw like crazy stuff like 15 to 20 percent year over year appreciation there and that wasn't we didn't expect that that was gravy on top of everything that was a total bonus I mean I think that's a good rule of thumb is you know you buy for cash flow and assume very minimal appreciation don't assume you're gonna make your money in the appreciation unless you have experience doing that unless you can force the appreciation that it you know how to do it but uh so to speak, I say I think that's a potentially dangerous thing for a first-time investor to do. So that's how it all started. That's the beginning. All right, guys, that concludes our Creating Wealth podcast episode for today. I want to thank every single person that has listened this far. It really means a lot to know that people can learn from me and with me as we build wealth together. Hopefully, you can take home at least one thing from this podcast that will improve your life just a little bit. If you could, please check me out on social. That's at Kyle Curtin Real Estate on Instagram, Facebook, and I'm on Bigger Pockets. 
Until next time, let's build together.